So again, I am Jerry Riando. I'm on staff with uh, crew here at JMU. And uh, if you know me well at all, one thing you would know about me is I am a really big football fan. Like, a really big football fan. And specifically, and unfortunately, I'm a Virginia Tech football fan. Because it's been a bad year this year for Virginia Tech football. And so, okay, how about this? How many of you would describe yourselves as football fans? I don't mean you just kind of like enjoy watching it sometimes, but you're like, you like, like a team, you're dedicated to that team. Raise your hands. Okay, a few of you. How about just sports fans in general? Is there like a, how many of you would say there's a team that I am committed to and dedicated to? Raise your hands. Okay, so a good amount of y'all, but not, not the majority. One thing I've discovered is difficult to explain to non-sports fans what it's like to be a sports fan. Because it's not like other leisure activities. It's not like, you know, you like fishing, and I like watching football, and it's similar. Or you like reading mystery novels, and I like watching football. There is something uh, about being a sports fan that you, you, get, you, you uh, establish this deep connection and association with your favorite team. So much so that when your team does really well, you actually kind of like feel a sense of pride, like as if you accomplished something other than laying on the couch and eating potato chips, right? And then when your team does badly, like my team has been doing recently, you feel like this sense of shame, which is completely irrational because you didn't do anything other than, again, waste your time eating potato chips on the couch. But there's this, this it, it becomes this deeply uh, emotional bond you have with your team. So much so that like my highs and lows sometimes in a week, especially when I was younger, were often determined by how my teams were doing. And when I was a younger sports fan, let's say like late high school and throughout college, I was very confused by older sports fans. Like, you know, if I went to a football game, the older sports fans being the ones who all the young people are standing up cheering for the team and the old people are sitting down, right? I did not understand why they didn't seem to be more into uh, their team, right? So like when our team would win, they didn't seem as excited as I thought they should be because for me, it was so important that we win. And when we, we lost, they didn't seem to be as like totally, completely depressed as I felt they should be, like I was. And I thought this meant they were bad sports fans. They didn't like the teams as much as I did. But I've learned that that's actually not the case. The reality is they'd been around the block and they'd seen it all. They'd seen their team do great. They'd seen their team the next week do terribly. And they had slowly over time learned the secret to being an even keel sports fan. So that when their team faced defeat, they were able to deal with it with a just a knowing nod, right? And when their team won, they were able to face it with a wry smile, not getting too high or too low. They learned the secret of being a sports fan that slowly over time, hopefully I'm learning. Well, tonight, we're gonna to be looking at Philippians chapter four. And we're actually wrapping up this series on Philippians that we've been going through since the beginning. We're about halfway through the semester. And we're gonna see that Paul tells us about a secret that he has learned about the Christian life. A secret that allows him to face victory or defeat, abundance or loss, with contentment, and even, he says, a kind of joy. And for our good, he has chosen to share that secret with us. So 
Turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles or you can Google on your phone or whatever, to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. And I will read it for us. Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at length, you have re- uh, that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, this, uh, learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, regardless of how familiar you are with the book of Philippians, or you know, even what your background is with Christianity, I, there's a decent chance that you have heard the very end of that passage. This verse in Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. This is a, a phrase from the Bible that's made its way into some parts of pop culture. Speaking of football, I don't know if they still do this, um, but when I was, when I was younger, uh, the eye black that football players would put into their eyes, sometimes they'd write this, a reference to this verse, like Philippians 4.13. One player, who you guys may not even know about anymore, I don't know, who was famous for doing this, was a guy named Tim Tebow. Right? Some of you guys know him. He was a quarterback at um, Florida, and now he's actually a professional baseball player, which is strange. Uh, but he would have this reference, and I always thought it was a little bit presumptuous because it sounded to me like what he was saying is, uh, because I have this great relationship with Jesus, God's going to help us win this game. And I have to be honest, if God was picking favorites in football, I don't think Virginia Tech's season would be going as badly as it is right now. I could be wrong, but I always thought this was a little bit presumptuous to think that. But as I've gotten to know this passage a little bit better, I think I've learned that is not what this passage is saying, and it's also not, I don't think, what Tim Tebow was probably saying. So let's take a deeper look at this passage and try to figure out what it means when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to go about this a little bit strangely. We're going to start at like the last third of the passage, work our way to the end, then we're going to start back at the top. So if you're tracking me in your Bibles, believe it or not, I have some plan of what we're doing this evening. Let's start in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What's Paul saying here? Well, a reminder, Paul is in prison while he's writing this letter. And prison in Paul's day, we've we've said this a few times, had some major differences than prison in our day. Uh, Like the purpose of prison in America today, depending on your perspective of prison, is either like to punish people for crimes or to rehabilitate people who have fallen into a criminal lifestyle, right? One of those two. Regardless of what it is today, it was neither of those things during Paul's day. Prison was just a place you put people 
while they were waiting for their trial, right? It was like a holding cell. And today, if you're in prison, your basic needs are probably being taken care of. You get some food, you get opportunity to exercise sometimes. Not so much during Paul's day. So he's in prison, and if he's going to have food, if he's going to have warm clothing, someone outside the prison, like a friend or a family, is going to have to provide it for him. And apparently the Philippians, Paul says here, were concerned enough for him that they apparently brought him some kind of a gift, maybe a financial gift so he could buy food. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm really grateful that your concern for me was revived and you gave me this gift. There is a sense in which one way you classify the whole book of Philippians is that it's a thank you letter for a gift that he received from the Philippians, right? So that's what that's saying here. Let's look at verse 11. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So I actually think this is kind of funny. What Paul is worried about is that the Philippians are going to think he's mentioning their gift in the hope that they're going to, like, give him another gift. Has, does anyone ever do this to you? Like, without saying they want something, they'll just mention something often enough, like, hey, like, that's a really nice uh, jacket you have. I don't know. Who would want your jacket? But, you know, they mention something in the hopes that you'll get the idea and give them something. Because I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to tell you that I'm in need and that you should give me another gift. Why not? Well, he says because he has learned how to be content no matter what the situation, whether he has uh, plenty to eat. He goes through some, like, some situations. He says, whether I'm brought low or brought high, whether I have plenty or whether I'm hungry, whether there's an abundance or whether I'm in need. In fact, he says, this is where the famous verse comes in, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So as we actually look at the context, what does it mean when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does Tim Tebow's I black mean when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? It means no matter how good or how bad my circumstance is, I can be content regardless of my circumstance. The all things or the, the high and the low, the abundance or the, and the need, the plenty and the hungry. So what Tim Tebow is saying when he has that I black on is not, I can win this game because Jesus is going to help me. He's saying, win, lose, or season-ending injury, I'm going to be content with how this game ends up. Why? Because my contentment is not based in this game. It's based on who Jesus Christ is. Paul's saying, you know, whether you give me more money or I, I'm hungry in this prison, I can be content. I can do all things. Because my contentment is not based in my physical situation. It's based in who Jesus is for me. And this means that there is a Christian peace and contentment that is available and can and should exist in spite of and not be subject to our circumstances. Another pastor put it another way. He said there is a joy available and that joy should make us at least happy, at least quietly happy, sorry, no matter what the circumstances, there is a joy that the deepest trouble can't put out. And if properly nourished, can coexist with and even overwhelm the greatest grief. And Paul says, I have learned how to experience that quiet joy, that peace in spite of my circumstances. And Paul knows a thing or two about great grief. Just a few of the things Paul has gone through in his Christian ministry. He has been beaten, shipwrecked, 
His closest friends have abandoned him. He was once struck blind by God for multiple days. He's been left for dead by mobs who had meant to execute him. And now he's in prison. He's not sure whether he's going to be executed or not. He says, in spite of all of that, I've learned to experience this peace, which I think leads to a supernatural application question. Have you learned that? Have I learned that? Do you have a peace or contentment or quiet joy that exists in spite of how your finals go? Or in spite of, here's a controversial one, who won the election? In spite of when a vaccine finally comes out, in spite of if that person you have feelings for ends up returning them, in spite of if you get that internship or that job, in spite of whether or not your football team manages to inexplicably lose to Liberty University, like mine did this past week, <sighs> or in spite of whatever it is that's weighing heavily on you this evening, I'm guessing the answer for you is it's a mixed bag. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's what it is for me. Sometimes I'm able to experience this, this peace. Sometimes I, my circumstances don't throw me, throw me way off. And other times, no. And other times, that does not describe me at all. So why is Paul able to say he experiences it? Is he just that kind of guy? Like, you know, there's some people who are more stoic than others, where it doesn't matter what happens externally, they, they just seem to remain even keel. Well, no, if we take the passage seriously, that's not what Paul says. He says it's something that he learned. He even calls it a secret. And here's the really good news. If it's something Paul learned, that means it might be something that, that we can learn as well. And he actually tells us some elements of the secret, and there's two parts to it. The first has to do with how we pray, and the second has to do with how we think. So we'll start with how we pray. This is the beginning of the passage, verses 6 through 7. Let me reread it for us. Paul says, Don't be anxious, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. A couple of notes I want to make before we talk too much about these two verses. The first is, when Paul says anxiety, he is not talking about the medical condition that's super prevalent among many of us today, especially among college students, of generalized anxiety disorder or anything connected to that. Right? He is, he's talking about uh, an experience of anxiety as a result of conditions, like experiences, not so much the result of a medical condition. He's not saying that it's sinful uh, to have this medical condition. He's not saying that you shouldn't see counselors or consider medication. When we hear the word anxiety, because of our circumstances today, the first thing we think is the medical condition. And that's not so much what Paul is referring to here. So I want you to make sure you know that. But I also want to say, to balance that, I do think what Paul says here can still provide some relief to those of us. And I'd fill myself in this boat who struggle medically with, with anxiety. And so I want you to hear that. Paul's not really talking about that primarily, but we can still apply, if that's something that we struggle with, his truth he's teaching us to our circumstances. So that's one thing. The other thing is you might be wondering, what the heck is this word supplication mean? That just means a prayer or a type of prayer or a part of prayer that means uh, asking God for, for things, asking God for, for, for health, for food. Anything you ask God for is called a supplication. So if we were to rephrase Paul's passage here, we could say, he says, don't be anxious, but instead of being anxious, pray, 
thanking God and letting him know what you need, and you will experience the peace of God. You may or may not have caught it here, but there is something very obviously missing in Paul's statement here, just to complete the logic. It's very clearly missing. So normally I'd have like a slide behind me that would show this, but it's too difficult in the situation. So just kind of get up, you got to pay attention because I'm going to walk you through what we should expect and what we actually see here. Here's what we'd expect. We'd expect Paul to say that you experience something that gives you, that makes you anxious. What do you do? You pray about that thing. This is what we'd expect. You receive an answer to that prayer. You thank God for the answer. And then you experience the peace of God. That's what we'd expect. But that's not what Paul says here. And so uh, let me walk through what that would look like. So you experience something that would give you some anxiousness. Like maybe you have a test coming up. What do you do? You pray to God. God, give me an A. Right? And then God answers your prayer and gives you an A. And so what do you do? You thank God for the A. And you experience the peace of having an A. Right? It's not what Paul says. Instead, he says, here's what you do. You experience something that gives you some anxiousness, and then you pray while thanking God at the same time, and then you experience the peace of God. What's missing? The answer to the prayer. It's not in the formula whatsoever. So what he's saying is, here's, here's how you should pray. You experience something that makes you anxious like a test. Test coming up. You pray, God, please help me do well on this test, while simultaneously thanking God, and then you experience the peace of God. But what's missing there? Like, the, what grade am I going to get the test? Right? He doesn't, he doesn't say. There's no mention of the answer to the prayer. And we could, we could talk about a bunch of examples of what this might look like. Um, you know, maybe uh, we, we're talking about the... Sorry, I completely lost my place. Uh, we were talking about the election, right? So what this would look like is, all right, so we're, we're concerned about the election. Maybe it's causing us some angst. Maybe we're worried about the well-being of our nation or our neighbors. And so we pray to God about the election while thanking him, and then we experience the peace of God. But no mention of, the, of how the election turns out. We could go on and on and on. Why would we do this? Why would we thank God before he answers our prayers? I, we haven't received anything yet. Like in the example of the test, why would I thank God before I knew if God helped me get a good grade in the test? And even more than that, why would I experience the peace of God if my circumstance hasn't changed? Right? If the test is still there making me anxious, why would I experience the peace of God? Are you tracking with me? I hope you are. Why would I pray with thanksgiving before I even know if God's going to answer it? And why would I experience peace from God without knowing what the answer to my prayer is going to be? And the answer, I think, is in Romans 8.28. You can turn there if you want. I'll also read it. This is another letter written by Paul. And in it, he says this. And this is one of the most profound and surprising verses, I think, in the entire New Testament. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. Another translation reads like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The ultimate good that Paul later talks about is making us more like him. The key word here that you have to pick up on, or he phrase, is all things. For we know that in all things, everything, God is working for good for those 
who love him. In other words, for those who have trusted in him, for those who follow Christ. This is why we thank God. So let's go to the great example. I, can, I have a test coming up. I'm anxious. I pray to God about the test. And why do I thank him as I'm praying for him? Because I know what Romans 8.28 says, that no matter what happens with this test, it's going to end up being for my good. So I can thank him as I'm praying for, even before I, I know what his answer is going to be, whether it's an A or an F, right? And then I can experience the peace of God because I know that whatever happens somehow will ultimately be for my good. One pastor said it this way, God will, this, this, Romans 8.28 tells us something very shocking. And it says that nothing can happen to you pastor didn't say this, never mind. I, I'm, I'm not on the quote yet, I apologize. What this means, though, is nothing can happen to you that God won't use for your good. Nothing can happen to you that God won't use for your good. That's a promise. What The, the quote that I was going to say is, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will only give you what you knew well, I'm sorry, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows, which means this shocking promise tells us that if we could fast forward to the end of our life and when we were with Jesus and we would look back in our lives, we wouldn't change a thing. Because we, from that perspective of knowing what God knows about our lives, we'll say, oh, I see. I see how somehow those things are working out for my good. I want to acknowledge something. I know, I know, that this can sound like I am trivializing your pain. I recognize that. Or more correctly, I know it can sound like Paul is trivializing your pain. Speaking to things that are really going wrong in your life, that are really hurting you or other people, and saying something like, cheer up, Jesus has the wheel. You know, something like that. I, I, I get that. And I get that you may be looking at me and going, Jerry, you're speaking from a place of privilege, which is true. That you're speaking from a place where you can say that it's all going to work out for good because you, you've got so many advantages. And I, I get that. And I know how you feel because Catherine and I, my wife and I, had the experience of living through the April 16th shootings at Virginia Tech. We were students at Virginia Tech at the time. And we lost people we knew and we cared about. And I remember I went home after the cancel class, obviously, after the shootings. I drove home, and I was there for about 24 hours. And I left because I couldn't stand anyone else telling me how I should think about what had just happened to my community. I couldn't take it anymore. There were too many things like, Oh, God is, God's doing something good. Like, God's going to make this okay. God, God has a plan. And, you know, they may have been right. I didn't care. I was furious when I heard them because they didn't understand my pain. They didn't understand what my community was going through, and it just sounded trivial. So I get what you're saying, and I've gotten it at times when I've been weeping and angry. I wanna, we need to balance that with the tr uh, something else that's true, though. If the promises of Philippians 4 and Romans 8 are only true when we're not experiencing deep pain, then they're of no value. You understand that? If these promises that God will work 
bad things in your life for good and that we can experience peace in the midst of horrible situations are only true when the situations really aren't that bad, then the past promises are of no value because when you really need them, they're going to fall short. You understand? If we can't believe this to be true in the worst situations, and this book here that we, we read every week to try to find truth, we really should just throw away because it has to be true in the worst circumstances or it's of no value whatsoever to us. And so I hope you hear, I'm not trivializing, but we have to hold on to the hope of these promises, even when things truly hurt for us and for other people. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every bad thing has a silver lining. That's what I'm not saying. As if God is working around bad things. God is working around hardship, around evil, as if uh, he's pulling some good things out of the bad to try to salvage it. No, it's way better news than that. God is turning the bad into good. He's transforming the heart of the evil that we experience in our lives. You know, the, look, April 16th, the shootings, that was a result of sin and it was evil. But God has and it continues to work to even turn that evil for good, somehow. We don't totally understand how. But we do know what the greatest example of this is. Do you know what the greatest example of this is? Jesus' death on the cross. Has there ever been a worse evil committed than the creator of the world, the Son of God, the one who had never done anything wrong his entire life, being killed? Right? That is the worst thing that's ever happened. But you want to know what else? The greatest good that's ever happened for humanity came out of that same event. God took the most evil event that ever occurred and turned it so it became the greatest good that's ever happened for us. So much so, oh, they don't have one up here. But most churches would have a cross, right? Do they have one? No, they don't. That's okay. A lot of churches have a cross. Like, that's the symbol of Christianity. Do you get that? The symbol of Christianity is a symbol of death and torture. Why? Because God took the worst thing that's ever happened to the greatest person and made it so wonderful that it's become our symbol of our faith. So that's one. That's how we pray. How do we pray? When we experience these things that should make us anxious, we pray while thanking God for whatever he decides to do and we're able to experience the peace of God as we believe that to be true. That's the first thing Paul says to do that has to be the secret. Here's the second thing. It has to do with how we think. And we find this in verses 8 through 9, which I'll reread. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, heaping adjective upon adjective here, right? If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace, the God of peace, will be with you. Paul has these, this list of just, these, like, think about things that are, what's he say? He says, pure, good, commendable, excellent, right? If we weren't careful, and we didn't read this in context, what it might sound like is if you think about good things, you feel good. We could kind of summarize it in some, you know, trendy self-help book like The positive, posi the uh, Power of Positive Thinking. 
right? Think positive, feel positive. But that's not at all what Paul's saying here because he's speaking of specific good things, specific beautiful things to think about. And they're the things that they receive and learn from Paul. And what is the most beautiful thing Paul taught them? He taught them the gospel. The message that we talked about earlier that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, became a human being, suffered and died on the cross. Why? So that we could have a relationship restored with God. Right? And he's saying, if you think, I mean like really think and meditate on that truth, it can lead to peace. Not in like some mystical way, like some magic trick, and not like as a reward, like God's like, oh, I'm really glad you're thinking about me, so I'm going to give you peace. Not like that at all, but simply because it's the natural effect of, of doing that. Let me pause again. I want to take a step back from this. What I'm not saying here is that pain isn't real and tragic, and that truly bad things happen that really hurt people, and we need to take that seriously. I'm not saying that we should give trivial answers to people in the midst of their pain. In fact, Christians should be the first people to sit and weep with those who are weeping, taking their pain that seriously. But I am saying that as we, we think about this gospel that God has given us and what Jesus has done for us, we should also be people who, while we weep with those who are weeping, have the greatest confidence in Jesus Christ and the gospel and that God is working things ultimately for the good of those who love him. So what does this look like? How does thinking about the gospel bring you peace in the midst of difficult situations? Just functionally, how does that look like? We might call this meditating the gospel or, or preaching the gospel to yourself. What does that look like? How does that work? Well, just a couple examples. Let's say you are anxious about a test coming up. What, is the, what difference does it make that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? What difference does it make as you're stressed out about that, that test? Right? Well, what, why are tests nerve-wracking? Well, the nerve-wracking, at least part of the reason, is because it's like the most obvious like, measurement of, of your capability. Right? So there's very few times in life where you can put like, a number on how good you are at something. But like school and tests, they do that. They just give you a number. Like you are at 78, right? And, and what, what does that do? Well, it says like my value in this area is 78, right? And that's not super awesome, right? And so as we get ready to take a test, we know we're getting ready to be given an evaluation that we might think affects my value and my worth. Or maybe I'm worried about if I don't get good enough grades, I'm not going to get uh, a good job after I graduate, and then my parents won't be pleased with me, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it's all connected to the sense of value and worth and significance. And how can thinking about the gospel impact that and maybe give you peace in the midst of a stressful test coming up? Well, what does the cross tell us? The cross tells you that when you face the ultimate test at the end of time, when you face judgment at the end of time, God's going to look at you and go, well done, good and faithful servant. I am so pleased with you. I love you so much, a hundred, right? That's your grade. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And that reality can give us peace in the midst of that. How about the election? Oh, and this is a controversial one. This is one of the ones that might hurt a little bit. But it's true. It really is true. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ say to us if we are feeling angst or pain about the election? Well, it says that the ultimate king of the universe died. He died. He suffered and he died for you. And he was put in a, a tomb 
The tomb couldn't hold him. He raised from the dead, and he ascended to heaven. He's sitting in heaven right now, working out all things for your good. And look, I know, I know, I'm not, I know that we can say in a trivial way or in a place of privilege something like, Jesus is on the throne, who cares who wins the election, right? Because there's real consequences to this stuff. I get that. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is on the throne, working out all things for your good. He is, and we can rest in that. And I hope you don't hear that as trivializing. How about, let's go, let's go more serious. What if you experience, you or someone you love is experiencing medical challenges? What if someone you love has cancer? What difference does it make that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you or for that person? If that someone is, is suffering a real physical, maybe even um, life-threatening illness. Well, it means this. The king of the universe experienced the complete brokenness of his body. The complete brokenness of his body. And as we experience brokenness in our own body through disease, through hurt, through pain, the king of the universe looks at you and goes, I, I, I experienced that. I went through that. And you know why I went through it? So that one day I can restore. You know what your destiny is? Do you know what your destiny is? Your destiny, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that one day you are going to be given a perfect body again. That we're going to live in the new heavens, the new earth, and there will not be any illness, any sickness. And so as we think about that, as we experience real hardship related to our bodies, it can give us, as the pastor said, at least a quiet joy that can coexist with and if properly nourished, overwhelm the deepest pain and grief in our life. I've got like 10 more examples, but I'm so out of time. Remember my, my illustration in the beginning? I talked about I don't understand old football fans, right? Because they don't react the way you're, I thought you should react. Like when our team stinks, you should be like super upset. When our team is doing great, you should be like super elated. They don't respond the way I think they logically should if they really cared about their team. Why? Because over time, they have learned the secret to being an even kill football player. Not player. Fan, right? The same can happen to us in our walk with Jesus where we can learn over time as we learn to pray and to think like Paul teaches us here, to pray with thanksgiving, trusting that whatever God does will ultimately work out for our good, and to think about the ultimate good he's already done for us on the cross. If we do that more and more, we can actually become, slowly over time, people who the world looks at and goes, what is wrong with that person? When terrible things happen to that person, they seem way too even keel. They're not like immune to pain, but they're able to have this quiet peace and quiet joy, even in the midst of the worst pain. Confuses, confounds, but shows hope. And it shows hope in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Because we know Jesus Christ has defeated all the pain, all the evil. And even though we're still experiencing it to some extent here, we won't always. And he will work all things out for the good of those who follow him. So that's it. That's Philippians. We made it through the series. I hope it was as, as meaningful to you as it has been for me and the other staff who've been leading us through this. I'm going to close our uh, time right here with some prayer, and I think the band's going to come up while I pray. And I hope you're able to worship this God who truly is working all things for your good. Dear God, we acknowledge that this world is full of brokenness, real brokenness, brokenness that has real consequences. And God, we recognize 
that you are God who in the person of Jesus Christ experienced the utmost of that brokenness. You are not immune to that brokenness. You do not stand apart from that pain and that brokenness that we experience and we see so many experience. And God, we thank you that you turn the worst things that happen into good. We don't always understand how, but we thank you that we, you do and we believe that you do. And Lord, we pray that that belief will help us to pray with thanksgiving, will help us to meditate on your gospel, and help us to somehow experience this, this peace um, and maybe even help others know this peace as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.